Sarah? Yes, Alex? What would you say the hardest part of dating men is? Thank you for finally asking me a question. (laughs) Welcome to Mistakes Were Made, a podcast about non-monogamy for messy people like us. I'm Sarah. I'm a therapist. I'm a writer. I'm a parent. I am a frustrated lover of men. And I'm her husband, Alex. I'm a communications professional, and I'm also a frustrated lover of men. And I'm Jessica, here producing resident monogamist and a frustrated lover of men. Today, we're excited to welcome a guest to the podcast. Dr. Eric Fitzmedrude is a Silicon Valley-based psychotherapist who's focused on relationship and sexual issues. He has a PhD in clinical psychology and has been in private practice for over a decade. He works with couples and individuals and has a specific focus on men's issues. He's polyamorous himself and bisexual. His work, especially focusing on men's issues, led him to write the book, which just came out in 2023, called The Better Man, A Guide to Consent, Stronger Relationships, and Hotter Sex. Eric, we're so excited to have you on the podcast. Um, We were wondering if, to start, you could talk a little bit about how you got from private practice therapy to writing this book. Yeah, I was writing a blog in 2017 as the Me Too hashtag really began trending online, changing the landscape and the conversation broadly around consent and showing up in the headlines. And while I don't work with people with the kind of predatory behavior that ended up in headlines during that time, I was and have throughout my practice consistently seen consent as a problem that my clients are showing up with. Um, Things around sexual pressure, conversations around sexual desire, differentiating um, the, the distinction between desire and relationship needs. And so I started writing a blog post in 2018 and around that topic of consent in relationships. And one blog post in draft form became two, four. And by the time it was eight, I realized that in order to really cover this topic and in order to address it to men the way that I wanted to, I really needed to take a much larger perspective and I realized I was writing a book. And then I put it in a drawer and didn't touch it for four months because this was too big a topic and I got scared. Yeah. Uh-huh. I was scared for you just inside that anecdote. <laughs> and then you're like, yeah. and I'm writing a book. And I'm like, that's terrifying, Eric. Also, hi, yeah. I'm so glad you're here. Hi. Um, is it okay if I just jump in and ask a question about that? Yeah. I was becoming a therapist around that time, um, of the Me Too movement. And certainly for me personally, and a lot of women I was seeing, it was absolutely central and present in sessions. Uh, I am realizing that not until this very moment had I considered if that were also the case for men. And so I'm wondering if the blog posts that you were writing were inspired by the fact that lots of men were talking about it in session. It it was. And I mean, I think that probably um, you won't be surprised when I say that the most common way that it was showing up for men in explicit form was, but I'm not a predator. I'm not Mm -hmm. a rapist. I don't coerce. 
And this is why I've really taken to making the distinction, a couple of different things in my approach. One, I really like to start talking with men about these topics by talking about the love that they have in their hearts and the desire that they have, because then we're talking about whether that love and or desire is being delivered skillfully. But at least we're coming from a common place of recognition of the gift first. I think that that reduces a lot of the resistance. Like, yes, you are a man who wants to be a good man. Yes, you do love. Yes, you do desire, not just to get pleasure, but to give pleasure. Um, and then I like to talk about the distinction between what I've come to call low bar consent versus high bar consent. Low bar consent, I think of as that baseline of like, let's prevent sexual assault and worse. And the high bar consent is let's find and, and map and travel on the pathways together that can lead us to the highest forms of erotic pleasure and freedom for each other. And these are two very different kinds of conversations. But if we aren't at the high bar, especially in long-term relationships, we can collapse and eliminate a lot of the possibilities out of our erotic lives together. And that really opens up, okay, maybe you're not a predator, but maybe you still created pressure. Maybe you're not a predator, but maybe you've still created feelings of discomfort in your partner. And what can we do about that? How can we talk about that? And how can we change it? I love that idea of high bar consent and low bar consent. Um, that feels mm -hmm. incredibly helpful and like something I haven't actually heard articulated in that way before. Um, I want to dig into more of that. And I want you to also dig into your experience of the book. But I just, uh, I had to ask, why did it feel so scary to write the book? Why'd you put it away for four yeah. months? <laughs> Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there were a number of things. It, um, being a man wanting to speak to men about this, I was worried about my positionality, you know, even as a bisexual and polyamorous man, having been attracted to men and in sexual relationship with men, I didn't know if I could represent um, the pain of people of other genders. I didn't know if um, my own mistakes um, historically around consent or my own mistakes in um, cheating would disqualify me from mm -hmm. um, being on a public stage. And I, over the course of the kind of five years from those first words being put in a Word document to publication, I spent about half the time writing and editing and the other half of the time going through my personal development to figure out how am I going to be in integrity on a public stage, recognizing my fallibility, recognizing my faults and flaws, and still hopefully pointing in the right direction. Wow. That's, uh, I think that really shows in that I'm, I'm a terribly slow readers so i haven't actually finished reading the book yet but um i in the in the parts that i've read so far i think it really shows up and it's it's interesting because it doesn't feel like a book that uh where you decided that you had something to say and just fired it off haphazard it really the intentionality behind it really shows i was telling these these 
guys the other last night when we were talking about it that it feels almost like a reference book in some ways because it's so well researched and there's just like so much there it's not like there's one perspective that you're putting forward but there it, it seems like there's a lot there for sort of anybody who is kind of any at any place on that journey to get out of it um and so there's very very basic stuff about what is consent and what do you need to do to be in positive relationships and then there's kind of much, much deeper stuff as well um the thing that really stuck out for me, though, I think, is that, you know, we talk about a lot on this podcast about just like the challenging dynamics between men and women. Um, we're talking about relationships, non-monogamous polyamorous relationships between men and women a lot and then less so between women and women as well and non-binary people. But, um, you know, uh, there are a lot of challenges that come up between men and women. We want to spend a lot of time today with you talking about that and some of the source material there. Um, but the compassion that you're able to bring in the book towards the men's experience in that is is really, I think, appreciated because it's it's sort of a hard thing because of all of that background to express that compassion and come from that compassionate place while not sounding like you're erasing the inherent power dynamics that are there and the like history of oppression of women. Can you talk a little bit about that? Was that part of that five-year five journey for you? Or how do you think about that? Um, yeah, I mean, um, I, I'm so glad to hear that the intentionality is coming through and so glad to hear that you feel like it's um, touching on people's journey wherever they might be because that's ex exactly how I thought of it. I have men come in at very different phases of development around um, integrating their sexuality, um, whether they are really frustrated or angry at partners and really focused on what their partners are doing wrong. Um, some men come in and they're like, okay, I know I'm the common denominator in my relationships and I want to work on that. Um, and some really are wanting to go to the you know next level and kind of find the deep joy. Um, you know, I, I just got off of a call recently with, um, another man who's working in the area of kind of men's issues and masculinity. And one of the things that we talked about was, um, that there is sometimes a discomfort as men speaking about men's issues, especially if you are a feminist or pro-feminist thinking about how do we talk about these issues without erasing the power dynamics without erasing the um, the history. And uh, I think it's so important to recognize um, men's privilege. I think that it's so important to recognize the role in patriarchy and reinforcing this. But I do think that we can also talk about how men are put into those positions of reinforcing patriarchy or systemic racism or capitalism by our wounds in the patriarchy. You know, when Bell Hooks talks about the first wound that boys experience is not to inf inflict pain on others, but to cut off from ourselves our wounds with each other. And there are threats um, within strong feminist voices um, who and women who are calling for men to do this work so as men, I think if we listen to them as we are doing our work, 
then we are engaged in the community and we're doing the work that has been asked of us. And that doesn't mean negating anybody else's pain while we focus on ours. I really appreciate that. And I I feel like that nuance in talking about privilege and how it shows up in this kind of hierarchical power structures that we live in, being able to hold the tension that having privilege and being sometimes in the role of the oppressor or inhabiting a role that is an oppressor role also does distance you from your humanity. To even inhabit that role requires a distancing from your humanity, which is a wound too. And that that has to be folded into the conversation. um, Because I think if we fail to do that, and I'm probably borrowing from bell hooks too here. (laughs) I have all about love on my nightstand Mm -hmm. right now. Uh, If we fail to do that, we fail to actually understand how these systems are operating and it makes it a lot harder to dismantle them or challenge them. Absolutely. And, you know, I also think it's really valuable to recognize the lament of a lot of men who will say like, what privilege? Well, on the one hand, there may be a lot of privileges you're unaware of, ways that social dynamics that are so subtle, um, the ways that if you're taller, you get listened to more, the ways that um, you may receive deference that you're unaware of in conversation. And also, it can be true that for men of uh, color and for men of lower classes, not all of the privileges and um, benefits of being men in this patriarchal society accrue similarly to all men. And so there is an intersectional perspective that I find really valuable for this conversation to break apart. This isn't just about you being a man. This is also about your other privileges and identities and roles and how they show up in the intersection in you and also in the intersection with your partner. And you could be, you know, feminist from birth. You could have had all of your patriarchal notions deconstructed by your family system. You may have had, you know, low or little um, economic privilege. And also if your partner didn't come from that place, their wound under patriarchy if they are your partner, is still your responsibility to respond to, to continue the healing process. And so it isn't just about what did you do or what are you doing? I think it's also about choosing to show up as a healer for the people that we come into contact with. Yeah, that's kind of what we wanted to do, try to do in this episode um, is to uh, have... Um, Sarah and Jessica talk about some of their experiences um, in dating uh, with men and hopefully have you help, you know, through the experience that you have uh, in researching the book and in working with your male clients, help to kind of decode uh, what what was going on on the man side um, and, you know, kind of help decode some of that and see, like, what do we think was going on there? And maybe I can try to help a little bit, too. Um, <laughs> although I, I have tried to do that in the past, in, in backyard conversations. And you do, I think we've had some really good conversations yeah. with that framing in mind. I just wanted to jump in and say the intimacy around some of these issues uh, and how, like, hard it can feel yeah. also creates an urgency that I think is exciting. Um, And I think that there is a way that because these relationships are intimate and sometimes domestic and um, really 
complex, there is an opportunity mm-hmm. to understand uh, how this stuff shows up in relationship that then can be really useful in the way we think about the world and our place in it in general. But it is so fucking frustrating. Mm. The stakes are high. The stakes feel yeah. very high. <laughs> Even if it's just about doing the dishes. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I also think that's how we know we're having a real conversation, right? It's we're talking about we're deconstructing the assumptions and the automaticity of what we've been socialized to. And we're coming into a mindful moment, maybe at first where we get paralyzed with all of the things we suddenly witness in what we're navigating. But then we have this really powerful opportunity in that mindfulness to make something new happen here together. The love, the connection, the gentleness that we bring can undo all of that noise. And I just think about the beginning of our idea for this podcast and this little podcast series inside of Mistakes Were Made in part came from, I think, a quote from me mm-hmm. uh, that I see that you've written down here. <laughs> uh-huh. A direct quote. <laughs> a direct quote uh, where I just said, you know, I, I love men and being in relationship with them feels like so much work. And I just like... Mm-hmm. I'm so frustrated. Um, And I think that was a big part of what inspired us to explore this more on the podcast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes um, that I got from a woman who read my book was, if more men read your book, I would have sex with more men. Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. How is that not on the back of the book? (laughs) Yeah. Now that's a blurb. (laughs) That's a great blurb. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's a new high you did bar. A, you did a good job of putting it essentially in the yeah. subtitle of the book, though. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think it speaks to men and women really do want to feel close to each other. Um, and it's really scary and frustrating that it feels like there are these barriers and we don't understand what they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And there are a lot of bi women who have said the same thing that you like poly bi women that we know a lot of them are like. I want to be dating men and a lot of them that are married to men and then they're out there dating and they're like, I don't really date men anymore because it's too hard or traumatic or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that is a common Mm -hmm. Common common refrain. refrain, Yeah. Okay. Okay. So what do you got? (laughs) Okay. And there is some about us too, right? We're going to try and, which obviously I am not going to be a great. Person to I, okay, so this might be me stalling, but I had one other question for uh-huh. Eric in the framing. He's definitely stalling. <laughs> I'm definitely stalling. Uh, I was just curious how, if in any specific way, this shows up in polyamorous relationships or non-monogamy. If you notice that there's some particular opportunity, frustration, themes there, I'd love to hear you reflect on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, if there's a trope about monogamous uh, heterosexual couples opening up, right, it's that that notion that like he's the one who pushed for it. But then once he gets out in the world and realizes how hard it is for him to date as a man and how easy it is for her to date as a woman, then he wants to close the relationship down again. Um, So that's one of the ways that it shows up. You know, it's been so interesting to me to watch my experience and the experience of some of my 
closest poly male friends who have done a lot of work, um, even if there's always more work to do, always. But, um, you know, our emotional capacity makes it much easier for us to date as poly men than the experience that we hear from a lot of other poly men, or maybe the common lament. Um, just being able to do your emotional work, being able to receive critical feedback non-defensively, being able to soothe your emotions and hear what the partner's experience was non-defensively, you know, that development is a massive part of what makes a difference in your experience as a man dating Polly. I think of whatever orientation, whether you're dating heterosexually, bisexually, or um, gay, you can hook up and get sex, but getting relationship requires emotional development. Yeah, I appreciate that distinction, and I feel like it's probably a good segue into a couple of <laughs> my anecdotes. Um, so I have an embarrassing number of them written down here, uh, but I think I'm going to start with just like the biggest, broadest one. Um, I've recently, after having been in a relationship with a man that I got out of, and I was kind of, I was chilling out on it for a second, I started going out on dates with men again. And almost immediately, I was like, ugh, I forgot about this experience of them never asking me any questions. And it's so frustrating. And I feel like, I feel like I go into those situations with like all kinds of conversation starters, all sorts of things I want to know about them. And I'll get like halfway through the date and realize that's all that's been happening. They've been talking. I've been asking questions about the things they've said. So I was going to engage in an experiment and I was like, I'll just ask them to ask me questions, right? Like it's not fair to expect that of them and not uh, give them a chance. So in the last like two or three dates that I've been on, and sometimes it wasn't until the second date. I would be like, this is the date where I'm going to be like, hey, you know, I'm a therapist. I used to be a journalist. I'm like a question-asking machine. Uh, so sometimes it's hard for me to let other people, you know, ask the questions. And, and I just directly was like, so I'd love for you to ask me about anything you're interested to know about me. And, like, it, it just didn't go well, and it felt really bad. <laughs> I felt like I'd really fucked up. Um, in almost all the cases, I feel like the men seemed kind of offended or flustered, um, or they just like, in one case, he was like, well, that doesn't feel like the way conversations go. You don't have to like ask someone to ask you questions. And I'm like, well, it, it does kind of feel like that. <laughs> what you have to do? Um, and it just like didn't come back from that. Uh, and I, I've kind of had this experience three times in a row and it just leaves me feeling like really despondent <laughs> and oh, sad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to approach this kind of just by responding to that piece of your experience first. I mean, the grief and that um, kind of internalization of like feeling like maybe you made a mistake in there of trying to get from your partner what you needed or for your date what you needed is a very common side effect of this pervasive kind of emotional relational developmental delay that men experience is that because we are 
unaware of of our own delay. Mm. Our surprise at being asked often puts our partners in this unintended gaslit position of like, no, you're wrong for asking or you're wrong for needing this or that's not how this works, I think. You know, that's not what I expect in the, our own surprise coupled with the automatic defensiveness yeah. often puts our partners back on their heels and then makes them question themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is very common, what you're talking about. Uh, so I want to just invite you to release that <laughs> and put Thank that you. back into that is uh, that points at men's work and it's okay for you to need it it's okay for you to ask for it and it's okay for you to notice and lament and be sad that you aren't getting it not just from a date but as a pervasive experience i think that's common i appreciate that i I feel like I know that it's common and that like women often will complain about this, but then when you have the experience yourself, it's hard not to be like, oh, he took that as a criticism, I've hurt his feelings, or I think more powerfully upsetting to me, if he were actually interested in me, he would just do it naturally. And what he's kind Mm. of pointing out here is that he's not, you know? So just to jump in. Real quick, the yeah. feeling of like, uh-oh, I got in trouble with a woman is like, mm-hmm. even outside of that specific circumstance, is like a very, like a familiar feeling that I think like, you know, kind of related to your your reference up top of like the, the Me Too movement. It's like obviously not on the same scale, but I think that in in that context of like consent and stuff like that, it can feel like uh, just the idea that like I did something wrong, this sort of hypersensitivity that like a woman who I don't, I don't have trust with, like told me even in the smallest way, like I did something wrong. Can like, I've had definitely had the experience of like hearing that getting hyper activated and just like, Oh God, what did I do? And it's very hard to like stay present and just like be like, Oh, I'm thinking of a question right now. Like, and Alex, let's notice, right? The translation from she asked for what she needed to I did something wrong. Mm-hmm. Right? She, she she stepped in and asked for something, but the the defensiveness begins with the lenses of interpretation from the beginning to be questioned to be invited, to be asked for something, it gets interpreted as being told that there is deficiency, as opposed to maybe the partner's experience, which is, wow, this is nice. I'm liking what I am getting. And therefore, I feel comfortable enough to ask for more. And so, you know, the... The process has so many dimensions to it. So I think one of those is that lens of interpretation. The next is um, maybe a lens of scarcity is um, you're a man who heard this story and you're thinking, my gosh, you know, if I was asked that on a first date, I'd be so scared because it's so hard to go on an app from, 
you know, swiping or, you know, liking profiles to actually getting to that first coffee or that first date that I would be so scared that any question I would ask would be the wrong question or would put her off, then I think that's one of the other lenses that a lot of men bring to that experience, the dating scarcity. Mm, And to those men, I would say, gosh, to that experience, I know what you're talking about. I know that pain. It is real. It is hard to date. And it is very hard to get to that first meeting. And the scarcity is even broader than you know. Mm. Because if you are a man who has human connection, who has deep human relationship at platonic, non-sexual levels, who has deep human community over dinners and lunches, who is invested in your community of like, hey, what's going on with that uh, work thing you were telling me about? Or what's happening with your kids? You were saying that there were some things that were going to be tough coming up. You would know that that kind of reciprocal engagement is how we relate to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you are so truncated in your human experience that you're not used to being in human connection, then you don't know that back and forth reciprocation in non-sexual, non-romantic contexts, or which is why I emphasize so much that in order for men to repair this, we need to reestablish our connections with our communities. Mm. We need to bring our gifts. We need friendships. We need to solve what, you know, a lot of the manosphere people are talking about as an epidemic of men's loneliness mm-hmm. by connecting with each other. We can solve this if two lonely men get into human relationship with each other and just start being friends, bringing each other soup when they're sick, they will not be as lonely. Yeah. And it will not bring as much desperation to their desire to connect with partners. Right. Practice asking each other questions. So when you get on that date with Sarah, you're ready. Yeah. I mean, and also you will find in that process, right? Not every man who might be available to be a friend is the kind of friend you want. And that's the exact same template that you then bring to a partnership. So you will already have this idea that we need to vet each other. There are questions that I have. There are needs that I have and that not everyone is prepared to meet. And so I want to find out if you are prepared to meet them. What do you mean about the kind of um, poly or the kind of relationship you're looking for? The term itself doesn't tell me everything. Yeah. I really appreciate the framing of scarcity and also the kind of training, gender training that we've received about being in community and what that looks like. Um, It reminds me of something one of your partners said about this experience. Uh, I think I'm paraphrasing, but she basically said that her interpretation of not being asked questions on a first date was that the man has already shown up and said, I am interested in you physically and I want to have sex. And that is the way that I'm showing that I'm here. And now I just need to kind of prove to you that you should want to have sex with me. Uh, and I, I've been thinking about that ever since I heard it. Yeah. It, it kind of landed with a thump in my chest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I wanted to offer that to you, Eric, and see what you make of it and if that resonates. So I, I think that there is a way that it does resonate with my experience of working with men, and I think there's a way that it doesn't. Um, I do think that there are ways that that shows up with um, uh, so many things to unpack. Okay, so let me start with with this part. You know, I start with this assumption that um, 
men often lack deep, intimate human connection, right? This scarcity that I was just talking about. And then we take all of that background scarcity for our desire for human connection, and we try to fit all of those human connection needs Mm. into sexual, romantic, and emotional connections with partners. And so, you know, I think the most common lens that resonates with that story is, yes, that men are saying, well, like, I want connection and you seem adequate as you know a possible partner to i am so starving for it that i have no threshold i have no um no barrier for you to get over if you offer me human connection my god i am so hungry for it and i just want to be touched in any way my answer is yes I do think that then in a most in a more defended and narcissistic manifestation that shows up with men who are like, I, you know, I want to have sex with you. Are you ready to have sex with me? And that's, you know, one manifestation of that. And I think that there's another um, sadder and more scared version of that, which is I just don't want to scare you off. I'm so I don't want to say anything that will scare you off. I'm afraid that if I create content in this relationship, that it will be the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that comes from scarcity. I think that it comes from a lack of um, practice. And I think that it comes from an awareness at a certain level of the power dynamics that I could say the wrong thing here. I could trigger your tar- your trauma. I could trigger power dynamics between us, but I don't know how to navigate that. Right. And in that sense, it's the same problem that a lot of white people have talking about racism with Sounds people of familiar. color. Yeah. I just don't know what to say. So I'm not yeah. going to say anything. So I won't say anything. And, and I'm going to get really to... tight. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, yep. And Oh, God. Yeah, there is a lot to unpack there. I was definitely feeling the experience of having been on both sides of that equation. I definitely know that feeling, and I have acted that way, absolutely, in relationship with BIPOC people. Um, I guess one thing that is coming up for me and maybe applies across these examples is how hungry I am to feel like I'm being noticed as a unique person, as the individual that I am. I really want men to see that about me. I want them to like, like me for those reasons. And that's what like, that's what makes me feel so sad. Like even just saying it, I'm like, I feel like I could start crying right now. Uh Um, And it makes a lot of sense that they can't do that because there's this scarcity thing. And they're just like, I, I can't even really be attuned to that or care about it that much because I'm just like so eager for anything in this department. Yikes. Right. And, You know, I think that it's such a beautiful message that you're sending to any male listeners out there right now. Like the gifts of um, that men bring attraction, interest, desire, um, adoration, you know, um, savoring a partner. The world is hungry for us to yes. be who we are and to bring our gifts. And if we decide to, to 
hear the message of the ways that we're being invited to um, divest ourselves of patriarchal power, and we confuse that with men's gifts are not welcome in the world, we will make a hungrier, more pained world. It's so important, but we have to have some difficult conversations, right? So, you know, hearing what you're saying, um, having meta conversations about how are we going to navigate desire and privilege here? What are the things that trigger you into feeling like somebody's only wanting your, to get you into bed versus what are the things that make you blossom because the person clearly is desiring you as a human being? How would you know that I was, you know, in one of those categories as, as opposed to the other? Um, when does desire become too much? Um, hmm. And um, how will we prevent it be f- from becoming too much for both of us together? Um, so that kind of collaborative navigation of the power dynamics, our internal fears, our desire, we can open those conduits together, but we have to begin having the language for saying things like, well, thank you for asking me to ask you questions. I noticed that as you ask me questions, I'm a little bit scared. I don't want to scare you off. I'm nervous about saying the wrong thing here. Um, and at a certain level, I am kind of paralyzed at the moment. I don't know that any questions are coming up, but I also appreciate you telling me what you want. So give me a minute. I'll let you think about, you know, if there are any particular questions that you like to be asked, and I'll think about any if any questions arise, and let's be in this awkwardness together. Yeah, all right. And then I'd be like, okay, let's make out. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so if there are any men listening, right, I want you to hear that... Right? Yeah. <laughs> Being in uh, so many men's reaction to me teaching them about meta communication is oh my gosh, that sounds so tortured. Oh my gosh, that sounds so awkward. Oh my gosh, I couldn't do that. And what I keep finding over and over and over again is if you just get real and name what's yeah. happening. Mm-hmm. The conduit for desire is created just by the process. You don't even have to do it right. Yeah. Um, Which is the concept of right and wrong in it is go ahead, Alex. Oh, I was just thinking how similar that was to the the sort of mocking that people do of consent in sex, right? There was this is like a few years ago, but when people were talking about like well, how are my people establishing consent and sex? Like, just the like, is this okay? Is this okay? Is this okay? Like, that's not sexy at all. How's anybody supposed to have sex like that? And like, this was this way that people tried to like, basically, like, unpack or dismantle the idea of consent and like, make it so that it wasn't a thing, I guess. I'm not like completely familiar with the content of that, but like, you know... I don't know. It's just you're trying to make it seem silly to talk about what's going on between two people by saying that it's impossible to do that. Uh, but in fact, it is it is very possible. The process right? is the process of building a language yeah. between yeah. two people. And that process is exciting and sexy and unique in the entire point of connected relationships. But it does make people very <laughs> uncomfortable and it makes men and women very uncomfortable. Right. This isn't strictly a male problem i mean i've definitely had that had experiences with women where i tried to do things like play the consent game with them or 
you know, have these kind of meta conversations with them and they reacted like very, you know, fearfully or like, were like, I don't want to do that. I don't know how to tell you what I want. I'm not comfortable in this role, um, which part right. could be my execution for sure. But like, it's not a language that everybody is conversant with right and this is also where i try to get deliver that message to men consent is for you too right if you get if you try to have that consent oriented conversation and your partner of any gender says i don't really like consent conversations i just kind of want you to know what you want and to take it run that's not safe for you yeah yeah right that is not that yeah. is not a relationship even if that person is saying at some level that they are offering their body to you that is not safe for your emotions. It's not safe for your sexual safety. It's not safe for the protection of you from entering into a situation where you accidentally create feelings in a partner that violate your sense of the kind of person or man you want to be. So upending this idea that consent is something that for men or for high desire partners to get from the other consent is for the protection and safety of all bodies and all hearts in all situations and so it's that's one of the things that's going to end up driving your questions to come back to that example because if you're oriented to what protects you you're going to try to be vetting people because not everyone is safe out there should we try another <laughs> prompt now that we've gone on a 25 minute tangent with this one? That was all fantastic. Though. Yeah, it was great. It just gave me so much to think about. And I'm beginning to see, and, and I think with a few more examples, it'll become clear that they're connected to the same thing. Yes, Where This sure. is like the same thing kind of manifesting in different ways over and over again. Um, and I'm just really struck by that desire on all sides. Everybody is like, I want to be close to you. I want to have an experience with you. I want to be seen. And this material between us that keeps that from happening um, and some of the resistance around pulling it apart. Mm -hmm. But I just am really feeling that, that everybody wants that connection. Yeah. Um, yeah. Jessica, hi. <laughs> hi. Hi. <laughs> I know. So a little background, <clears throat> Eric. Jessica and Alex and I have been friends forever. We've been making media forever. Um, when Alex and I were in a monogamous marriage with each other, Jessica spent much of that time dating. And then around the time that Alex and I opened up and started dating, Jessica got into a monogamous marriage. So it's <laughs> like an interesting uh, context and history between us. And I know that I was yeah. there bestie through a lot of that dating mm. and the highs and lows. So I asked you to source some of that material mm. for this podcast. Yeah, you thought it sounded fun I did. back then, didn't you? I did think <laughs> dating sounded fun. And I have apologized <laughs> for having said that to you many times. <laughs> On the podcast, Anna. You're right. Um, I was wrong. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, and that's, I mean, it is, it is fun and it's horrible and it's, it's ever, it's just like being a person, right? Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I think we were thinking about a story. This happened a long time ago now. I mean, it was probably 10 or 15 years ago. Um, but God, and I hadn't thought about it since we talked about it or until we talked about it last night a long time. But so, you know, I'm, I was dating this guy, you know, we were probably on like a second or a third date, something like that. Um, 
And I was so excited because he suggested we go to like a dance class, a salsa dance class, you know? And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. I love dancing. Like men never want to do this kind of thing. (laughs) This is great. Um, And we get there and, you know, five minutes into the lesson, it's revealed that like you have to, you don't just dance with the person that you came with as your date. You like rotate around, you know, you do a step together and then you move one step in the circle or whatever. And he just like lost it um, and refused to participate, you know? And I was just like, oh, okay. I mean, I guess, I don't know. Do I stay? Do I go? I can't actually remember if we just both left or mm. what. Um, but yeah, it just was really surprising to me that like, it was like his idea. It was his idea. Yeah. I know better than to suggest such a thing. With I remember you coming home from the state. <laughs> did you go out with him again after that? I think, well, we did. The date continued, right? The funny okay. thing was, after this failed dance lesson, we went and met up with a bunch of his friends oh. at a bar who were lovely. We were having a great time, but like multiple ones of his friends like pulled me aside over the course of the night to kind of like warn me off of him. And, Whoa. Which like... Is troubling, I suppose. I didn't know these people. <laughs> this is their friend. I think, yeah. And he didn't like explain. He didn't. Did he say anything about the experience of the the dance? Oh no! Like it was just like you know when a person just shuts down and it's just like this conversation. This what what dance class? Um, <laughs> so <laughs> you know we couldn't even go like. I don't know, go sit with the friends and be like, whoa, this thing happened where like, you know, when you think you're going to really like something and then you hate it, but it wasn't like not on the table for a conversation. <laughs> um, I, I have questions, sweet. <laughs> but I want to hear what Eric has to say. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to go back to... Um, bell hooks and that socialization as male that we experience because the notions of um, two-dimensional patriarchal masculinity that um, man box in the language of Paul Kibble or Mark Green or um, restricted masculinity there are a lot of different ways of talking about it those get enforced by Uh, for us as men, often by people of all genders, but in particular by other men with violence, Mm -hmm. right? So this is the experience for queer men of being, um, you know, beaten, um, ostracized or um, uh, teased and brutalized socially with um, names usually that tell us that we are not men. Um, And from the trans community, we know the violence of being misgendered, right? But we don't often think about that as applying also to cis men who are being socialized into patriarchal masculinity. But that is the tool that patriarchal masculinity does. You're not man enough. You're not a real man. You know, you're a sissy, you're a pussy, you're a coward, whatever it is. So a big part of what that creates for us is this experience that at best other men, even our closest male friends, are just not threatening us at the moment. Mm. We can't Mm. see them Mm. as community members, as close heart friends. We can't see them as people that could help us in healing, in thriving, 
this is why you get language like um, uh, a lot of men will say, well, I don't really have a lot of male friends, but I, you know, all of my friends are women because it's easier to talk to women, etc. A lot of that is, uh, you know, the cumulative effect, not only of our trauma from other men, but then also other men's trauma from other men and the difficulty that we then have making connections. I think, looking at it through a poly lens, this is where one penis policies come from. We can't imagine that another man's sexuality could be beneficial to my partner or to my relationship with my partner. Other men must be seen as threats um, for resources. Other men must be seen as threats to my safety, my security, my well-being, even to the point of not being able to share a partner in a dance process. And, you know, talk about the lens of culture, then I would guess, although I could be wrong, that this was not a Latin um, male that you went on a, um, on a salsa dancing class with. I, I, I could be wrong, but, <laughs> you know, that's the norm in salsa dancing is that you dance with multiple partners. Right. Hmm. Yeah. It makes me so sad. Um, and I, But I really, that, it makes a ton of sense. Jess, I'm curious, why do you think that story stuck out to you even 15 years later? Hmm. I mean, I think... Well, there's two, like there's, and there's kind of two parts to it. Like the friends thing definitely jumped out at me when we first were trying to sort of think about dating anecdotes because I was kind of like, wow, there are, I think it's common for us to have people in our lives or friends who were sort of like, oh, I know they wouldn't be fun to date. Right. Mm -hmm. Even though I love them as a friend. Um, And I'm not quite sure what it is we can like detect you know like we're maybe not able to articulate exactly what it is but i'm sure it's something in this all of what we're talking about but i think the other thing is it was just so um it's just so surprising to have come up with an idea and then like apparently not have been able to project like Mm. just the teensiest bit into the future of like what's gonna happen (laughs) when you go to this dance class it was just so I was so surprised and like you know it's already a little bit like you're nervous it's like but it was a new thing like I didn't you know it was a new person I really do think it was like a maybe second date it was a last date if I recall but yeah yeah, I think that is I was just so sort of like deer cut in the headlights like what what do I do? <laughs> and also it sounds like you were really excited in the beginning. Yes. And then mm-hmm. very disappointed. Mm-hmm. That is so true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That will be chasing that dragon still my whole life. No, just like, this was the one guy that came up with a date. With a dance class. Dance. Well, and a date that suggested vulnerability, mm. right? Mm. Like yeah. the yeah. premise of the date going to a dance class suggests that he's going to be vulnerable. Right. Right. And like yeah. suggest that he's going to be excited about like, first of all, dancing and so like a dance class. So he's not already just like really good at dancing. Right. He's going to learn. And then the partner. Yeah. Part two. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and then slapped. It's <laughs> like, no, <Nope. brutally. laughs> how dare you want something like that? <laughs> and, and Jessica, it sounded like a part of the excitement too was that invitation 
made you think maybe this was a man who was going to show up differently than a lot of the other men. Mm-hmm. Maybe he was breaking some of those norms in an exciting way for you. So you thought you were going to get some of that, those male gifts without some of the baggage or without some of the negative emotional experience or emotional labor that you would have to do. And then what you got was not just not that, but the opposite of that, like deep <laughs> entrenchment in the thing that you were hoping to get away from. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. God, that's so interesting. I hope he's listening. I know. <laughs> yeah. Maybe some of his journey has led him to listening to her. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> All right. (laughs) Diving back in. uh, You know, I was thinking coming in after our little break that I wanted to dial into the non-monogamous experience a little bit uh, because I think there are a lot of these ideas translate across monogamy and non-monogamy. And I know for our listeners, trying to understand how these things might show up or get unpacked through non-monogamy is of particular interest. Um, So I was thinking, what is like the most common frustrating experience I have in non-monogamous relationships with men? Um, And what I was coming up with was that it feels like the men I date have two speeds. And one of the speeds is we're in a non-monogamous relationship, so that means it's entirely about sex. Um, It stays in that container. Any kind of like emotional content doesn't belong there and isn't part of the deal. Um, And so those relationships tend to end inevitably when emotional content comes up, which also feels inevitable to me. Uh, And, you know, sometimes there'll be relationships that have been many, many months long and the emotional content feels relatively small uh, and then it just kind of collapses. So one example I was thinking of was someone I was dating recently for a pretty long time, almost a year, uh, he invited me to his birthday party. And this was a relationship that felt like pretty contained in like, we met up, we like went out, we had sex. We texted a little in between, you know, that's, that felt like, but you know, you get to know someone over the course of a year and like intimacy deepens, you know more about each other. He invited me to his birthday party, uh, but then said that he didn't want me to be honest about our relationship, the nature of it, that we were partners which I was just at first thought was going to be okay. Um, and then when I did it, I was like, no, that did not feel okay. And I don't like that. And it's not going to feel good to go out with him again and not talk about it. And I feel like that was kind of the beginning of the end of our connection. It's like, we just could not find a way to navigate that successfully. Um, so that's one speed. The other one I've experienced is men where it's like, the escalator to romantic, like big romantic intensity is short and fast. Um, And it feels kind of out of tune with what we're actually experiencing inside the relationship. I'm like, do you know my last name yet? Like, (laughs) I feel like you couldn't answer a basic quiz about me. And yet this is like feeling like huge romantic energy. So... What's going on, Eric? Explain. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> okay. Uh, I feel um, a little accused around the rapid relationship emotional escalator because that is um, one of the big mistakes that I make. Um, I fall in love really rapidly. Um, and um, the way that I talk about it in my book is it's so important that we develop the consent-based conversations because when we have that neurological cascade, we may not be able to stop it. So you know, I don't want to pathologize something that's happening to us. There's a connection. It feels good. Those feelings start moving. And how we relate to what's happening with our emotions is so important. So we can have that internal experience of rapidly falling in love and we can recognize, number one, that is a delusion creating state. Um, it is a self-confirming state. So we put out these feelings and then we filter what we perceive from the other person in ways that help confirm for us that that's, that, that is in fact what's happening. Um, and, um, we need to make sure that we have structures in place, a community of other people that we can talk to friends, hopefully where they are familiar with this pattern, or at least we make them familiar that this is our pattern. We say, Hey, you know how I fall in love too fast? Guess what? I went on one date uh, with Sarah and she's so amazing. And I think we're going to have lots of sex and babies. <laughs> And, and those people can be there to check us and they can say, hey, remember, you told me before that you have this pattern. What are you going to do so that you don't spoil something potential here by getting in over your head, by um, uh, developing, you know, I think one of the roots of that pattern is um some potential for insecure attachment it's that i want all of the time and energy because this feels good and there's some potential but now i want all the confirmation that it can keep going because otherwise i feel scared mm. about the ambiguity and to so lose the it, more yeah. and to lose it exactly yeah. and so the friends are vital to this that you can talk about frankly about emotions sex relationships including your faults and flaws and that you have friends that you trust mm. to hold you to your values mm. um so that you are behaving like the partner you want to be and not damaging your relationship and then the more overt piece is going to come right back to that transparency and checking it with a partner like, hey, I am feeling all of these dizzy, heady emotions and flutterbys in my stomach. And I know that I have this tendency and sometimes that scares people away. What are you actually experiencing? Because I need you to tell me really frankly so that it can check me if I'm getting in over that in my head or if I'm scaring you off because it's not my intention. Yeah, I love that. Uh, as you were talking, I was realizing for me and polyamory, what is wonderful about it is the possibility to have like long arc relationships. Like I really love being in relationship with people over long periods of time. I mean, these two are perfect examples of that, uh, but I have yeah, those kinds yeah. of relationships everywhere. And these two tendencies for like oh, yeah. it to stay in sex and any emotional content to shut it down 
or for it to escalate really fast and not feel like attuned to where I'm at really interrupts that possibility for me. Um, And yeah, that idea that being able to communicate that directly, like, here's what I want. (laughs) I would love to co-create a long, low arc relationship with you. This is what I'm good at. It can look a lot of different ways. is really helpful. Yeah. I also don't know how that would have been yeah. received by these men, but it's interesting because I don't know. Like you haven't really pointed out ways that these are necessarily like man problems specifically, but it, I would say it's these are not things that I've run into with women that I've dated. Like having setting out the intention to have long, slow arc relationships with women usually seems to like work pretty well for me and they seem to usually be pretty receptive to that it also works for me with women i would like to go out on dates every three weeks and like i don't want to do something really escalatory usually they're like sounds good yeah i do (laughs) feel like women tend to speak that language with me more so and i've succeeded in that eric why do you think it is that men might be have a harder time either hearing that or just might kind of signal regulating between those yeah yeah yeah, um, I want to add just a little nuance, and then I'm, uh, then I'll answer that. So I don't think it's only a men's issue. I've experienced both of these dating as a poly man from female partners, um, and I think one of the core basic reasons why it is a little bit more, in my experience, clinically and um, uh, dating poly a problem for men is just the root of it is emotional self-regulation. We think and talk a lot about emotional self-regulation as a necessity for big, difficult, problematic emotions like anger, but it is also just as true that big, positive emotions like falling in love also need to be regulated hmm. or, or sexual desire. Hmm. Um, and I haven't really spoken to the sex-based entirely no emotional content thing. I think that that really comes from a lack of proficiency, hmm. a lack of capacity. I don't know how to have these. I experience the conversations as critical. I um, They feel overwhelming to me and my nervous system. And it's so much easier for me to just keep relationship at a physical level. And so I defend my heart and I defend my attention from noticing your emotional experience and hope that that's enough. And the, you know, the root of that again is emotional self-regulation, right? If I disappointed you or you're sad, I think one of the biggest problems, and I say it in my book, I don't think that the real problem with men is a lack of empathy. I think that much more often I experience the problem with men in relationship is that we are so empathetic that when we see our partner in distress, we can't regulate our distress. So we rapidly move into trying to fix it, to stop them from feeling the thing we can't tolerate them feeling. Interesting. That's so weird because I thought men were really rational. And women are here. <laughs> I, You're yeah, blowing my I mind love, here. <laughs> I love dispelling that one. I I is, is, I get a strange kind of shot in front of anytime a man in my office says I'm more rational, uh-huh. and then and then I just walk him through dispelling that notion uh-huh. right in that session. And we're not. We are not. We we approach things from a defended, rationalized position. Uh-huh. But our emotions are driving our perceptions and our behavior almost all the time. Yeah. The, 
You could probably and, do a whole podcast about the construct of male rationality and like all of the things that we've built to, to create and protect right, that well, idea. And there's very good data that this is true in a non-relational perspective. Women are better investors on average than men. Mm-hmm. And it's because they put their money in their investment accounts. They put them in stable investment accounts and then they leave it there. Whereas men are constantly both kind of taking higher risks, but also not tolerate, not able to tolerate low parts in the market. Oh, so, so they a jump long, out of things low at the low. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Women are spread at a long, low exactly. Arc. <laughs> Thank you. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, the other, well, there was something else here. Oh, I also think that as we're talking, I'm recognizing that. The invitation to talk about conflict or sort of like misunderstanding or a need that's not being met or vice versa, that I don't, I think culturally, and I'm sure this applies specifically to gender, but culturally, we don't understand that that's an invitation for more connection. I think like we just understand it as a threat to connection. Um, Yes. And if I had like one big therapeutic memo that I wanted to offer the world, it would probably be that. Like that this is actually a bid for more connection, not less. Um, So I just wanted to offer that up as well. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. So Jessica, you had another, (laughs) are you ready? Are we ready for this? (laughs) Another example from your dating life. Yeah, yeah. Well, and this was one, that happened, I mean, I feel like it's such a cliche, sort of, that I'm like, why was I surprised? But I don't know. I had a couple of different times, like two different men that I dated in the you know, space of the same, I don't know, couple years or a couple months even. Um, we got to a stage of like maybe date three before they told me that they were still married to you know, to wives that they were in the process of divorcing from. But like, I was totally surprised and caught off guard in both cases because like they were both people I had met on the apps, you know, where there's like every opportunity to just be so clear and explicit about like your relationship status, right? (laughs) Which is like in the process of getting divorced is a relationship status, right? But it's not the same, especially at that time. Like that was before I had ever even thought about this whole world of polyamory. And like, I think my feelings about relationships and that, you know, were much more binary at the time. Um, but it was very, it was like shocking to me. <laughs> like, you know, that it just it felt like such a big deception. Um, and in, in both cases, also because it was totally fine that they were dating, right? They were well and thoroughly separated. They weren't cheating. You know, they both ended up people being people that I dated for like a few months. Um, but I, I, I really was so confused in the initial, like, discovering of that information. <laughs> I think that this is caused by a couple of things. I mean, I think that um, there is a lot of dating advice out there that if there's something that you are vulnerable to share, wait till the second or third date to share it. Mm. Um, because at least you create a little bit of connection and con- uh, con- a container for that mm. difficult information to be held. 
And I think we might be back to the notion of scarcity for men in dating apps to I'm afraid or maybe I have already experienced that if I put on my profiles that I'm in the process of divorce, that no women will touch that. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And it also brings us back to that feeling then that we you were talking about, Sarah, of like, well, not me. Right. <laughs> like for me, I would right. prefer that you were really clear right. and explicit about your status. So that's treating me like just a, you know, a commodity. Right. This is why I really recommend to people that I'm guiding um, through the online dating process, put all your um, deal breakers and put all of the things about you that are weird and might break um, the deal for somebody else out mm -hmm. up front. Um, offer your gifts, but just be really clear because you need to be more efficient and not have more volume. Mm -hmm. um, volume <laughs> isn't the goal. Um, right. If you had one date that connected you with the right person in the right circumstance who could accept you as you are, that's your success condition. So get out of the idea that you aren't going on dates yet. Um, uh, so you need to figure out how to get out on more dates. I can tell you how to do that, but that's not how to get into the right relationship that you want. Mm -hmm. That's a different thing. Mm -hmm. And then I think the apps do a disservice to us because they really do orient us to volume as, mm -hmm. as their success condition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, uh, I wrote down the word hiding mm -hmm. when you were describing mm -hmm. that. And Alex, that's something that I've heard you talk about a lot in your own personal experience and your experience with other men. Yeah. That's the thing that came up for me when you were talking about that is like the instinct to obscure things that you feel uh, I mean, it could be things that you sort of like you're describing, Eric, like that you you sort of calculate that will will reflect reflect unfavorably. But it could be things that you feel shame about. Um, and I don't know if that's just a human instinct, um, but to me, it feels like a particular particularly like sort of a man thing that like we shouldn't that there are certain things that are not OK for us to do or think or feel and that we shouldn't you know if we are if those are happening that we should obscure them and it's like almost like a, a self-protective self-preservation instinct is that a thing that you see yeah. like coming up in other realms or in that realm yeah i mean i think we're back to the um violent socialization of men um that um authenticity vulnerability it feels like a threat, feels like it will become the source of the next um, teasing violence or ostracizing that we experience. And I think that there is something that um, feminism has done for women and other genders that um, we haven't, as men, figured out how to do for each other as well yet which is that there are multiple good ways of being a woman that are held up as positive. Certainly the mommy wars are still a tension that exists in culture, but also women experience affirmation for those identities, those ways of being in the world um, in other contexts and from among other women and other community members. Whereas for men, 
I think that we kind of experience a lot of messages about what how not to be. And there are too few voices guiding men about how to be that aren't reactionary anti-feminist misogynists. Yeah. Wow. I really appreciate that. That's yeah. And you can see that just, I've never heard it put that way. Um, and yeah, the fact that there isn't that the sort of binary between feminism and there is no manism yeah. <laughs> that isn't but, toxic is depressing on Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'm I'm in dialogue right now with a number of other, you know, pro-feminist intersectional men's leaders for men and masculinity, trying to figure out why, you know, the history of pro-feminist men doesn't get media attention, why, it, you know, so many of us who come to those positions individually were completely unaware of the other communities out there. And it's, uh, it's something of a dilemma that I'm trying to noodle on. How can we make that more visible? Mm -hmm. I think that people are very hungry for it. I mean, there's so... I think so too. Just in casual conversation in our community, I think it comes up a lot about like how to raise sons, for example, um, yeah. how to do this in more thoughtful and intentional ways, how we can create more of a diversity of possibilities for young men and, and our partners. I wrote down as I was listening to you all, um, this idea of shame and perfectionism, uh, conformity and perfectionism. I think this to me circles back to the conversation we were having at the beginning about how systems of control and oppression operate. And it's the people who hold, in my observation, the people who hold more of the power are also deeply constricted and have to conform very closely to one understanding of what it is to be that identity. Um, and that's like some sort of, I don't know, just like horrible contract that you get into. Um, and I don't exactly understand why it's like that, but I feel like there is a connection between perfectionism and patriarchy and toxic masculinity I think there's a connection between perfectionism and white supremacy you know like you just see it kind of repeat itself in these ways yes yes okay yeah just some light Monday morning stuff whatever <laughs> big deal just like a, just a well, fun uh, podcast about dating that's all <laughs> what, what, yeah fun uh, our, our conceit was so fun and uh, We're yeah, fun, whimsical. We're um, one other reflection on that uh, last thing too is I was looking at the um, the men's studies section at the, our local bookstore, Elliott Bay, and it's like has a very a pretty robust like LGBTQ women's studies section, and the men's studies section is comparatively very small. And I would say like more than half of the books in that section are written by women, uh, which is like you know certainly appreciated that like there are women doing that work but it's also kind of striking like that more of the labor of like unpacking this stuff is being done by women than by men uh, you know in a way i so looking at the labor i know the lament and i appreciate it that you know uh, the lament that a lot of women and um feel partners of men say that they have to do for their male partners in a way, I also think that it is helpful for pro-feminist women to say, 
yes, there is a manhood we want. Because I think one of the orientations that men seem to have, I, I'm not trying to identify any gender essentialism in it, but I think one of the things that a lot of men are looking for is not just what are other men saying about what a good man is, but what are women, what are queer folk, what are people of color saying are good men? Because we also know that a lot of the men saying what a good man is are not the men that are going to lead us into that human community. So we're looking for what is being asked of us. We will sign up for it when we when that message is clear. Yeah. Yeah, and making a distinction between masculinity and patriarchy is so important, and I don't think we do a good job of that. As a, a bi woman, I feel like I really have to fight to hold on to this position that I love men and that I want to be in relationship with them. Um, and I'm defending right. that often. But I love masculinity. I love men. I feel more whole when I'm in relationship with men as well as women and people along the spectrum. Uh and we definitely, like, we really need you all. Really, really need you all. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think back to when um, the Black Panthers were seen as the greatest threat, it's when they began making connections to um, white workers and yes. really broadening the um, anti-racist agenda to... Um, a labor unity movement and it just shows that that there is a um, there's a tipping point that is put, that is available when men when cis folk when white folk line up with um, the marginalized populations and the oppressed populations more obviously oppressed populations in our community and when we say no, you know what? Actually, this just hurts all of us. Yeah. And we want to change it together with you. We would like a place at the table. We may not need to be the loudest voice. We maybe ought not be the loudest voice. But we're here and we want to do this work together to dismantle this system and make the world a better place for all of us because we are all suffering. All right. Yeah. That. That. Yeah. <laughs> well, that would be a great point to stop. And then we would get out of this podcast without having to talk about our relationship at all which is which perfect. is perfect in every way absolutely perfect <laughs> and has no challenges whatsoever because we've transcended all of the problems between men and women. great and yeah. scene yep that what i clapped to it. <laughs> uh, should we do for the sake of vulnerability okay sure for the sake of vulnerability okay so i would say like one of the biggest we don't have like it's maybe less of a specific thing and more of a general thing but um to summarize i think what you were what you were getting at here in the notes is the the main uh thing that sarah and i um i guess the word is clash on or wh where we miss each other is often uh, that Sarah want, likes to have a lot of conversations and spend a lot of time talking about feelings. <laughs> and I um, like to spend a lot of time talking and thinking about logistics. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, we often find ourselves in conversations where those two things are battling each other. And I don't mm -hmm. really understand why. I mean, we had conflict about that this weekend. Yeah, you what was the unpack that so we have a specific? Let's get into the specific oh. logistics. 
it's so convoluted and it's okay, like maybe not, it's, maybe it's really not. a classic yeah. like because we're polyamorous and parents of young kids and all and it was just mm-hmm. like there were a lot of logistics yeah. happening around like you helping a partner me taking the kids to something right other things yeah. that we had yeah so the example is like when am i going to drive my partner or pick my partner up from this like surgery that she's having and like how is that going to fit into when we're taking our kids to this thing and I just want to talk about that stuff and figure out like when we're going to do it and then Sarah is like you're not holding any space for like how it might feel for me for you to leave on Saturday morning to go like do this thing with your other partner that might be a big deal because you've never you know been in a position where you're like doing that kind of like big big sort of caring gesture like in her life mm-hmm. and that has mm-hmm. feelings attached to it. Is that right. what you would Yeah, I would say that that's we kind of had a couple of days where that conflict kept coming up and it was just hard for us to hold space for either of the thing. Someone tries to talk logistics. he tries to talk logistics, I'm talking feelings. I'm trying to talk right. feelings, he's talking yeah. logistics. <laughs> and we just do it till we're fighting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I have a um a general tool that I use for this, which is um I applied in a lot of different circumstances, but it is that the um, least safe person sets the speed. And that's about physical or emotional experiences. Um, And so when there are solutions to be had, the availability of a partner to be in solution space is dependent on the meaning and their sense of emotional safety, sense of attachment security. And so the kind of quick layer of that is it at least orients a quick recommendation in your couple to orient to um, maybe Sarah's emotional relational lens first, but I would also back up Alex and also inquire about what what are the what are the emotions and the needs that get fulfilled for you by the logistical conversation? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Probably feeling like it's okay that I'm doing the thing. And so, if you can go into the emotional conversation with Sarah, unpacking the vulnerability of, I'm afraid that when we get into this conversation, that the message that you're telling me is that it's not okay that I'm doing this thing and I'm trying to defend it. Then you can both have a little bit of emotional um, vulnerability in the conversation and comfort and care for each other. Mm-hmm. Do you think that this is a thing that, uh, that plays out in like a gendered way. Like, I, I guess I'm looking yeah. at either you from, from seeing couples, like do the, are the men usually the ones who are like, let's talk about the logistics. Yeah. Solutions um, oriented abs- in, in my experience. Yeah. Go ahead. Yep, exactly. And we t- we kind of talked about it earlier, right? The myth of male rationality is a big part of that. Um, let me avoid all the feelings. Let me not unpack what my values and emotional relational Uh, maybe physical needs are in this situation. Let me stay oriented towards practicality because then I don't have to reveal to you the vulnerability because if I let you know what was really vulnerable for me, then I'm afraid that you'll use it against me and hurt me more. Mm -hmm. Right. I was literally like, well, it only took me an hour. Why is it such a big deal? (laughs) 
(laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I think there's something else here in, I think it's complicated for everyone, myself included, that sometimes we can have a challenging feeling come up around something that does not need to be solved, that it just needs to be heard. Uh And that I know that for me, that unless we're talking about something that's like highly activating, that works 90% of the time. Yeah. This is a big thing that a lot of, uh, I mean, I teach this to a lot of couples, but I think men really need to understand it in particular. My partner can be hurting, but that doesn't mean I hurt them. Yes. Yes. I'm not the source of it. Um, It still might be my responsibility to lean in, to hold, to comfort. But just think about it this way. Like, if you are not actively participating in the healing of whatever pain is there, then you are probably actively participating in perpetuating that pain. Yeah, it's like wild the difference between the way I feel when Sarah has a hard feeling about something that is happening in her, you know, in her life elsewhere, in her relationships with other people. Right. And like my ability to hold that feeling versus my ability to hold a feeling that she has about like my other relationships or something that I've done. Right. Like even if of she's course. saying actively like You haven't done anything I, you haven't wrong. done anything wrong. I don't blame you. This is just hard for me. Like Yeah. I'm just like, nope, it's my fault. You're like, but what if I move it from eight forty five to nine fifty? Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. How can I get back to this place of per- being perfect? Could you just tell me that I'm perfect? I think this really is the root of white fragility. It's the root of male fragility. It's the root of a lot of this, that we are in a dominance-based culture. We are so afraid that being wrong means being eliminated from relationship, from losing things that are important to us, from losing safety, security, stability, financial well-being. And so our automatic defensiveness unconsciously inside of those systems orients us to protect and defend against being wrong or having made a mistake. And we, especially if we have um, uh, strong high performance business experiences or strong high intelligence academic experiences, we are oriented to the dialogues of um, argument that are about like, here are my points and I'm trying to win instead of, I am trying to witness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. These deeply hierarchical ranked systems that keep us always afraid that we're going to get ranked low and yes, and be hurt or traumatized because of it. And the reason why we feel that way yeah. is because that has happened to us. And it's also because we know if we've been benefiting from those systems, we know it's been doing it to other people and we've been seeing it. Right. right. So we're yeah. afraid of being on the flip side. Yeah. We're afraid of those systems of power, of being vulnerable and then having systems of power turn on us. Right. And, yeah. Because we've benefited from that in ways as well. So we have proof. Inside our nervous systems, we yep. have proof of both, both the things at once. We know it. Yeah. So it yep. wasn't just a conversation about logistics. <laughs> nope. It's about colonialism. I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> I had a feeling. 
this segues so well back into, you know, the mistakes I've made and, and my journey into writing the book. Because what I had to grapple with was that I knew I wouldn't present my book from the ivory tower or from the safety of the therapist's chair. I knew that if I did that, that I would be um, perpetuating those elements of power. And I had to grapple with how am I going to get into alignment with the risks that I'm putting out for myself to name that I've cheated on my wife, not once, not twice, but three times before we opened our relationship, um, two times before I recognized my poly nature. The third time I was watching happen from inside my ethical monitor inside. It was like trying to get the ethical, you know, sub part of myself back in the captain's chair of my internal ship. And I couldn't do it because that third affair was reconnecting me with a part of myself that had cut, I had cut off mm. for the 12 years from the second affair to that third affair. Mm. Um, and how would it be for me to be describing to men how to be in integrity without, I just couldn't do it without recognizing those times and spaces that have been out of integrity. So, you know, I go into a lot more detail in my book about that process but also about some of the mistakes that I've made in consent and back to, you know, the falling in love super fast relationship escalator thing. Like I have really had to learn from the inside of how to pump those brakes because I have such a, an intense imagination, such a powerful self-delusion system in that kind of context from falling in love where, uh, you know, my first poly relationship could have continued probably not being what I wanted it to be ever, but it could have continued being a really hot and sexy experience, except that I fell in love and assumed that that must also be happening for her. Mm. And she was like, I'm, this is fun, but yeah, you know, <laughs> and, um, you know, I detail some of those um, consent gaps in the book where I, you know, I've gone through the process of making mistakes, hurting partners, sometimes not bearing witness to it, not noticing that it was taking place. Um, and I've had to learn how to metabolize the experience of that is not who I am. That is not who I want to be. That is not the experience in you I wanted to create. And to calm my nervous system enough to just bear witness to and I still did that and those are still the feelings you have mm. and now what am I going to do about it but it's really only by calming that def that defensiveness that we get that opportunity and the opportunity in some cases then to repair the wounds we've caused or the wounds that we've reminded a partner of, even if we didn't do something wrong in the consent process, but sometimes stuff, traumas just come up when we're that intimate with each other's bodies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that, Eric. I really appreciate your vulnerability, both in sharing that stuff in the book and here with us. I think there's a lot of um, people can use this, kind of 
like language and exploration as for purposes of like self-justification sometimes to like perpetuate the same behavior that they want to continue and like we always have to be careful about that and then you know hopefully there more and more people are getting to to doing it authentically and actually trying to be better and treat others the way that they they should and that they want to and um i can really see that you're doing that and it really comes through in in your book and i think it is really gonna help a lot of people um so i just really appreciate you spending the time with us and um all the work that you're doing yeah. It's been fantastic. Have, yes. Thank you. It's been a really rich conversation. And the way I orient to it is I'm trying and I stay open to feedback because I know that I even now might not be doing it perfectly. Yeah. Well, thanks for doing it imperfectly and authentically with us this morning. It was wonderful. I really enjoyed it. Thank and I look forward to reading this you. book and all the future books. <laughs> all right. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for listening to Mistakes Were Made. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Instagram. Our handle is MistakesCast. Thank you, Eric, for joining us. And thank you so much, Sarah and Jessica, for producing. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.